of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general in nature. You should always consider your situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. All right. Anything else before we start? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh. Never mind. It's a twist off. <laughs> okay. So, uh, um, so this is not an off-field landing of the week. This is an on-field landing of the week. On-field landing of the week. It's an on-field landing of the week. Uh, this is a story that was big on the internet over the last couple of days. It's from Great Britain. Uh, this is from uh, the BBC website. It says, uh, a pilot who suddenly went blind while flying his plane at 5,500 feet was guided in to land by an RAF plane. Uh, the plane was scrambled from an RAF base, et cetera, et cetera. The guy was flying a two-seater Cessna, uh, and uh, they think he suffered some sort of stroke and lost part of his sight, and the RAF plane kind of got it, got on his wing and kind of guided him somehow, and the guy made a rough landing but got on the ground, and they took him to the hospital. All right? Here's my question. Do we believe this story? Yes. <laughs> Do we really yeah. believe this story? I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that you could be guided under any circumstances to fly your airplane to a landing with your eyes closed. I I, I read this first. Avweb had a different, slightly different uh, take, or had different resources uh, on this. Um, apparently, he had he was blind in one eye, and you know couldn't see out the other. Now he's blind in one eye and had limited vision out of the other. Um, I, I would have trouble, I, I think, just finding the instruments and and. Uh, um, but apparently that, you know, this is legit. It's, it's, it's been around the pike and, and, uh, you know, the quotes, it's, it's been, uh, it's been sourced. It's been, uh, um, um, demonstrated to be correct. It, it is a little odd. I will agree. Well, certainly in one of the articles about it, they do say that, you know, in the last phases of his, uh, landing, he did catch sight of the runway, even though he landed halfway down to the long, big runway, but he did catch sight of it. Yeah, um, but this is this is one of those ones that's very testable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, testable. I encourage people to go flying around blind, but it's, it's <laughs> interesting if you remember back when you were learning to fly, and your instructor said to you, "No, you 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 have to believe your instruments." Yeah. And you still were believing the seat of your pants, and then they did that demo where not the instrument training demo where they do it all roughly and get you into an unusual attitude. But the demo where they very gently, with your eyes closed, just fly the plane around and put it in a really unusual attitude, and you have no idea that anything's happened. Mm-hmm. And I've yeah. had that demonstrated to me. Um, but I wasn't holding the controls. I expect if somebody told you, if you were holding the controls and you were a pilot, you know, you were an experienced pilot like all of us listening, hopefully, um, well, then- that that, uh, you know, if someone says a little left aileron, you can give it a little left aileron, a, you know, a little more. A little back, a little forward, a little up, a little down. As long as you make small movements, I suspect that you could do it. And it, it, that's that, that 
brings up something worth you know talking about here. The the pilot, the stricken pilot, Jim O'Neill, been flying for eighteen years. Uh, you know, the, I I have I can't put this in the same heading as the uh, person that's you know been a passenger for eighteen years next to husband or wife, but never flown the airplane, and suddenly finding themselves pilot in command, unwilling though they may be and has no feel for flying the airplane. Here's somebody that's got 18 years of feel for flying aircraft, light aircraft. I was going to say, did, you know, the, uh, the, the feedback from the flight in the context, you know, off his wingtip, and a little up, a little down, a little, you know, bring it to level well, the wing. Here's a problem with that, though. Here's a problem with that. Uh, and I think this might get... To, to Jack's original concern, and, and I would have to admit it's a, it's not a, it's, it's a valid one. What happened between the time he lost his vision and the time the the shepherding aircraft got on, got in close formation with him? Well, hey, how long? New, yeah, how long was that? To hit the autopilot button. Well, two seat Cessnas. I would presume this was a 150 152 they don't well, normally the, have autopilot no, the picture is a 172 the picture is actually i think it's a 182 but uh, okay, might, yeah, so there's a 182 yeah. um yeah. but it's, it, uh, whether or not that was exactly the plane being flown i don't know i think that might be simply a uh, uh, a stock photo yeah, yeah, that's true articles do say two seat Cessnas and they do show a picture of a 182 so yeah so who knows? But I guess still, you know, maybe he was on autopilot. Uh, but could he? I, I don't know. The whole thing's the whole thing's uh, very weird, and, and I, I I do see Jack's point. Um, but apparently, this you know again, this was sourced, and, and and it did happen the way it was described. BBC is not Fox News. <laughs> uh, no. Well, you know, he also wasn't totally blinded, so you know, he yeah. might have had some uh, color differentiation between land and sky, which sort of kept him along an e- uh, a relatively even keel, even though he was being erratic, staying on that even keel, he was able to. Yeah, it would seem to me that would be a requirement here. I just, I don't know. Well, of course, we all know that Jeb flies his airplane with his eyes closed all the time, but that's just... Well, a- I can attest to that. <laughs> for, for short periods of time when there's another human watching the storm. Yeah, yeah. that was me. Witty because one of, one of Jeb's favorite surprises came when he was checking the backs of his eyeballs. And that's right. And I was not you know. checking the backs of my eyeballs at that particular moment. Uh, no, that, that particular moment, you were wide awake. This no, is no, 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 no. Even the even the moments leading up to that particular moment, <laughs> I was wide awake. This is the story that will never die. Welcome, folks, to episode 108 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Wednesday evening, November 12th, 2008. And, Jack, uh, yeah? this, this is one of the reasons, probably the reason, I've never been in an airplane where Higdon was the pilot. Yeah, All right, okay. <laughs> Let me say hi to my friends that are here in the virtual hangar. That hey. voice you just heard is Jeb Burnside. He's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. Hey, Jack. How are we doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So, uh, uh, you're not going to fly with? Are you? You're going to? You're going to just take out a whole lot of built-up ang- uh, or, uh, or anxiety. What's the right word? That's not it's, the right word. But it's, uh, it's um, uh, animosity on on our Dave. Uh, no, it's it's, and I'm, I don't want to to mess with the airplane or mess with him or anything like that, but 
there is probably in the back of his mind going to be that lingering threat. <laughs> be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> that, you know, I might just reach over while he's not looking and turn off the fuel or something. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, what the hey, open a door, open a window, whatever, you know. Just, um, but I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want him to dwell on it. Have you seen the new aviation handcuffs in the Sporties catalog? <laughs> TSA approved. TSA approved aviation handcuffs. Um, I can't wait. I can't okay. wait. They're lighter than yeah, air, but they'll secure you till you get there. We have something like that at the uh, at the adult bookstore down the street. Yeah, that's right. I think they come from the same company. Probably do. Which color they come in? Yeah. And that voice, which is a little bit different sounding right now, is Dave Higdon, who's joining us. Uh, we just changed him over to his telephone uh, from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're doing fine, other than the usual high-quality Internet connection. Yeah, we gave it a try, but it didn't work out. Uh, so you're still shopping for a better Internet connection. You know, a great part of America is, a great part of the flying community is anxiously watching your Internet search, you know. Oh, probably. Man. Yeah, we would probably be able to, like, you know, pass the hat. And... Yeah, really. What's going on, David? How you doing? Oh, not too bad. Fall is definitely set in here. It's definitely time that, you know, an episode or two down the road, we should actually put winter flying on the agenda and talk about that. Yeah, we should. We haven't done that in a while. Um, yeah, not tonight. Not with the stack that we've got here. We've got a big list tonight. So uh, you've been up to anything right fun? With all is right with the world, except for a few basic, you know, really weird things. Yeah. So. I don't want to embarrass you, but you've just written yet another awesome piece on the blog, and everybody should go take a look at it. Uh, it was a very, very touching uh, Veterans Day tribute to uh, that that had a, a really nice uh, uh, aviation twist to it, or slant to it. It was great. Oh, thanks. Uh, and, and I've heard from several people already who've commented, and... Uh, uh, much appreciated. I yeah. kind of write these on the from the perspective and the expectation that nobody but me will read them. So when somebody reacts, it's a very nice, uh, yeah. very, very nice gratification. Yeah, you know, you're pretty good at this, Dave. Appreciate. You could like make money for writing. You know, I was going to say about doing that for a living someday, but <laughs> yeah. it sounds like work to me. That's right. Yeah, I know. Work. Nobody, people don't realize. And also with us in the hangar this evening is Craig Barnett, uh, a friend of ours who's joined us on a number of past podcasts and is going to be sitting in for the whole uh, hour and a half this this time. Craig's talking to us from Crest, Crest oh, wait, I got to say this, Creskill, New Jersey. Did I say it right, Craig? How could it be so difficult? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> say it for me. Creskill. Creskill. Creskill, New Jersey. New Jersey. How are you Joy-Z. doing? What's what's uh, going on in your your part of the world these days, Craig? Well, it's not what's going on in my part of the world. It's what's going on in Ohio, where my plane is. Yeah, I know. We're going to talk. Oh, about, yeah. We're going. I think we're yeah, going to talk about that. Had like one of these two-month annuals, and uh, <sighs> I think the last time I flew was on my way back from Oshkosh. Uh huh. And uh, it's it's getting quite frustrating owning a plane and having to walk everywhere. Yeah, I. You know, we spend all we spend so much time on this podcast trying to convince people that flying can be affordable, and then we tell these kinds of stories, and uh, I, I, you know. I think they probably. I don't think it is a risk if you want to fly airplanes that are, you know, like really meant for long distance travel. 
Yeah. So, Craig, you've been on the podcast a couple times in the past, uh, briefly, uh, particularly at our some of our sun, well, the Sun and Fun uh, episode, and uh, I believe both of the Oshkosh episodes. Um, but I'm not sure if we had a chance to 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 meet you. I mean, we've met you. We've, we've eaten a lot of sushi together. But for our listeners to meet you, can you tell us a little bit about your your aviation background? Um, you know, how, how long have you been flying? What kind of flying do you do? That kind of thing. How long have you been associating with pilots, and do your parents know? Okay, well, unfortunately, my parents do know because uh, um, one of them was and still is a pilot. Um, oh, no. So I, I'm Tune one of the these family. guys who is lucky so enough to, to uh, grow up right in aviation. I, I literally say I grew up in the back of an airbag. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that's the plane that for most of my formative years my uh, father had. And we used to fly all around Southern Africa, um, but more particularly uh, around the Johannesburg area and into Swaziland, into interesting one-way mountain strips for your discussion last week. Yeah. Um, and uh, so a lot of my time was spent uh, like that. And then being an intense flying family, we uh, uh, also grew up with a, a Spitfire being built uh, in our garage, uh, which flew when I was about 12 or 13. Really? Uh, and which my father had for a long time in South Africa. A Spitfire? Um, a Spitfire, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, like. Re- nine World War II Spitfire. Restoring a, an actual Spitfire or building a replica or what? What No, what he did is uh, he gathered up uh, wreckages way before it was fashionable to, fashionable to have warbirds. There, there wasn't a warbird industry that there is today. And uh, over nine years and 22,000 man hours, he put together. Basically, a brand new Spitfire made out of about eight or nine different fuselages with components from around the world. Wow. Um, but absolutely original, except for one tiny little item. He uh, kind of liked the way the he didn't like the way the cannons and the machine guns looked on the wings, so he switched them around. But they were dummies anyway, uh, and it had all the armaments taken out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was quite a light Spitfire, so good performance performing mm-hmm. Spitfire, but. When it uh, started flying, it was the only uh, new and fully restored Spitfire in the world. I think at the time it started flying, there were only about nine flying. There's quite a few more now, probably more in the 20s. Um, Which which version of the Spit did he wind up completing? It was a uh, Mark 9. That's uh, the 12-cylinder Rolls-Royce Merlin in the front. Uh, And and really the one I think that most of us think about when we think of Mm. the Spitfire. And what's Uh, become of that airplane? Well, in um, 1986, he uh, brought it over to the States um, because uh, he felt that South Africa was on the verge of imploding and he didn't want this precious uh, piece of uh, history to be lost. My, my father always had a strange attitude towards his Spitfire, which was he never owned it. It was a plane that he was custodian of. That's mm-hmm. the way that he felt about it. That's and marvelous. he definitely felt that no one should ever own a warbird or something with uh, you know big historical value because you're going to pass it on, yeah. and so he spent his time in South Africa sharing it, and that was his intention when he uh, brought it here. So he uh, um, brought it to a friend of his um, uh, in California, and it was associated with uh, a museum in Santa Monica for many years. Mm-hmm. I did visit uh, Oshkosh, I think, in 1987 once, and uh, otherwise it flew fairly regularly as part of the museum. Uh, eventually, uh, the museum closed, uh, and the collection was sold off. 
And um, from what I understand, Rolls-Royce, uh, in the interim, my father had donated the plane to the museum. Um, so the museum now owned the plane because it was damaged in a landing accident and trying to fix it from South Africa was very difficult. So rather than pay to have an uninsured plane fixed, the museum fixed it and uh, they, they took it. Um, so uh, after that, uh, Rolls-Royce, I believe, bought it and donated it from what I understand, I may not have the story 100% right, but to a museum in Sao Paulo that has a, a fairly large flying collection of uh, historic aircraft. Hmm. And Interesting. So now, Sao uh, it's the, in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Now yeah. it's the only flying Spitfire in Brazil or in South America. Very cool. Uh, oh. So it's, it's still going around. Very cool. So what so, kind of... Uh, yeah. Hmm? I was going to say, so, what, oh, go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that's the kind of environment that I grew up in, and there's very few of us in aviation who are lucky enough to have grown up with that yeah. intense background. My father also was, apart from being a business person, he was, uh an intense instructor. I mean, that was his passion. And, and even though he ran a big business, every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, he was out instructing people. He loved doing um, initial training and getting people their licenses and doing twin ratings. That was his big thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, as soon as the Spitfire was done, we bought a couple of crashed Cessna 150s. Put mm-hmm. those together to create one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was fortunate enough to have a little Cessna 150 to start learning to fly in when I was 16. So I could solo when I was 17 and basically had a plane the whole time I lived in South Africa. Wow. Um, and you couldn't get luckier than that. So, um, So I've been flying since I was 17 and... I'm much older now. Uh, <laughs> so so where are you 44. based now? You're someplace in New Jersey? I'm in northern New Jersey, about uh about uh, ten miles north of Peterborough. Uh-huh. What what is the name of your uh, your home airport? Uh, Caldwell, New Jersey. Oh, you're at Caldwell. That's where James is located. Where James is located? It's about uh twenty five miles due west of Manhattan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very and, nice little airport. And I, I now have a hangar finally, but I have no plane in it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's right. Well, your plane is off being repaired or being being done some, done to, uh, which we'll talk to you about in a minute. But what kind of airplane is it? It's a uh, Turbo 182RG is like the current one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm lucky enough to share with uh, two other partners. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always owned planes in this country in partnerships because I've never figured out a way to justify ownership alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's good because that type of plane needs to be flown often, and at least one of my partners flies a lot. Yeah. So it should keep the plane in, in excellent shape. Yeah. And uh, I almost tricked myself here. <laughs> and I am Jack Hodgson. <laughs> it's been a long time since I almost forgot to introduce myself. I'm Jack Hodgson. It only took two days, three hours, and 14 minutes. And I'm up here at UCAP World Headquarters in Dover, New Hampshire. Well, welcome, Craig. And uh, we're, we've me. been looking forward for a while to having you join us uh, in the hangar for uh, just a, a regular visit instead of one of these special Oshkosh or Sun and Fun visits. So let's see, what's going on in the world here? I know, um, one thing I want to do first is uh, a, a bit of a correction here. Um, in last week's episode, uh, I was sort of raving a little bit about um, airport security measures that I thought were frivolous, and I was talking about what I believed to be the proceed or the, the, the rules or whatever at uh, Bedford's Bedford Mass's Hanscom Field. 
And uh, uh, my quick reading or, or previous reading of the rule was that everybody, no matter what, like for a demo flight, needed to get one of these $75 security badges. Um, I've since been told, and in fact, uh, before even being told, I went back and read the rules again and realized that, that they do have a, an allowance for visitors and to, to be escorted by someone who has a badge. And So if you want to go in, into Bet- Bedford, uh, Hanscom Field, and uh, get your demo flight, you can do that without having to, to front the $75. Just go and introduce yourself to the FBO there. And uh, while, uh, while we're on that topic, I say I, uh, we're talking about the uh, TSA proposed rule on large aircraft. Yeah. Um, something, another factual correction. Um, I think we talked about um, uh, federal air marshals and uh, how the proposal would. Um, leave it open at TSA's discretion for federal air marshals to be placed on the average King Air. Uh, That's not entirely accurate. The uh, federal air marshal provision, which is an expansion of the rules, um, would apply to aircraft weighing more than 103,000 pounds and some change. Okay. Uh, So it doesn't apply to the typical Part 91 general aviation aircraft it applies more to, say, a, a DC-9, 737 type, um, uh, heavy charter uh, type of aircraft. Operating under 91. Uh, basically, the rule is geared to yeah, it would, under 91. Yeah, yeah it, it would be operated under, yeah, operated under 91 and, and the, the, the uh, uh, maybe 125 also, but uh, uh, it would not typically apply to... Um, an aircraft that we think of as personally owned and operated. Right, right. We're going to come back and talk unless about... You're, unless you're John Travolta and his 707. Unless you're John Travolta and his 707, in which case, call me. That's right, That'd yeah. That would be a good way to get a free ride. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go. So, um... But it, 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 yes, it, you're, it, it's a good... It's it's a good point. It's a... Yeah. It's a distinction for yeah. all of us, but... It is a worthwhile distinction yeah, to right. note, it, and it's still wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's still it's still wrong. I, I don't want to leave anybody with the wrong impression. And and more, most importantly, when we're when we're talking about this kind of uh, uh, activity, this kind of action on on the community and the industry's part, we need to make sure that we have our ducks in a row and that no one can use against us. Um, a, a misstatement. Yeah, and uh, right. that's what I'm trying to do is correct right. correct that Absolutely. statement. Yeah, no, you're right on. So speaking of um, security at small or at a, a small and medium sized airports, Craig, you were telling us earlier um, about an uh, what I think, if I understood you correctly, that that you were actually thrown off of an airport just for sitting there and watching airplanes. Did I understand you could correctly? You, yes. Could you imagine that? Um, it just so happened I had a meeting next to Morristown Airport, which has come become a very corporate airport uh, in the past. Uh, where, where, what state is Morristown in? Morristown is uh, in uh, New Jersey, about uh, 35 or 40 miles west of Manhattan. Okay, and what happened? And it's, it's a very big airport, and you know all the big FBOs have moved in now, and a lot of the big corporations keep their planes. Does it have scheduled airliners? No, it no. doesn't have scheduled airliners. All right. It's a controlled airport. All right. Um, and uh, so I had this meeting nearby, and I had lunch with me, and I thought, oh, you know, I'll take lunch and engage in one of my favorite pastimes, which is sitting in a convenient spot and watching the planes land. And I uh, wandered into the airport uh, in my car, and I parked in uh, the FBO's parking lot uh, at the fence, and I was eating and looking at uh, 
at the plane's landing. And somebody came by and she said, uh, excuse me, um, are you waiting for someone? I said, no. <laughs> and I was just giving one word answers to start with. And yeah. She said, do you have a plane here? And I <laughs> yeah. said, no. She said, are you a pilot? I said, yes. But you don't have a plane here? No. Uh, then I'm going to have to ask you to leave. I said, why? I'm not on the airport property. I'm behind the fence. No, we can't have anybody sitting here uh, um, interfering with uh, with traffic that's going in another airport. And really? Not allowed to sit here did, and watch. did she really use that word, interfering? Absolutely. And she Who was there. this one? She was uh, someone from the FBO. From, it was Signature, um, which oh, is a very GA-friendly uh, FBO, as we all know. Yeah. Uh, at seven bucks a gallon. Um, but uh, she actually stood there and uh, waited and observed me leaving before she would move. And she was very adamant that I had to leave immediately. Didn't matter that I was a pilot, didn't matter that it was perfectly legal for me to be there on a uh, public airport behind the fence, not, you know, not, not on the airport property. Have you, have you complained about this to somebody officially? No, I haven't. What, what, it got me thinking about was remembering the many hours that I've spent just watching planes. I mean, yeah. most of us, even at Oshkosh, when we've gotten together, just sitting there at the runway and just watching every plane land and having comments and thoughts about it is uh, a lot of fun for a, a pilot. You don't have to be in a plane to enjoy it. And, and there's so many people that tell stories of getting their start in aviation by arriving at the fence and watching planes land and saying, gee, that's fun, and look, they look like just ordinary people, and maybe I can do this. Mm -hmm. And with all of uh, what AOPA is getting into with a, a whole new, very uh, um, expensive and flashy initiative to try and entice more people uh, to become pilots and see their way all through the 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 license process, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, this was very strange to encounter something like this, and that's what really got me thinking about concern. it. No, they couldn't they could, care less. They, they couldn't worry less about that. I mean, I was out of everybody's way. I was There was ample parking all over the place. Yeah. I wasn't bothering anybody. I had a fancy car, so I looked like I belonged there. <laughs> Everything was in order. Um, but, uh, you know... Where they, were you they, in proximity to the, the movement area? Well, the movement area was just on the other side of the fence, but that was their apron where, you know, jets and whatnot were parked. Um, uh, I was a fair way from the end of the runway, but could see uh, um, aircraft approaching the runway from the south to the airport. Um, you were outside so it wasn't like I was very close to taxiways or, or, or runways. I was only close to where someone would park. Mm -hmm. Were there any other, and there, there was no one else in this parking lot, I take it? Oh, no, there were just parked cars. Parked cars, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, no, no one else. And, uh, you know, it didn't matter what I said. You know, you think as a pilot that you have certain rights to be on an airport. Um, this is actually the second time I've been thrown off an airport. I was once thrown off Teterboro, too. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's, that's another story, but there... <laughs> I was inside the fence, and I was walking around looking at the planes, and someone came and threw me off. They actually put me in their little cart and took me to a, a gate in the fence and threw me out on the sidewalk. I had to walk about a half mile to get back to where I was supposed to be. Um, you're, you're just a big troublemaker, Craig. That's what it is. Well, I've you been know, thrown out of bars. I like to look at planes. I've been thrown out of an airport. Yeah. 
it, it's my job. I mean, could you imagine how, how bad that looks for my resume to be thrown out of airports twice now? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I, you, you don't have to put those things on your resume. <laughs> and you, you, you know, don't let them, whatever you do, do not let them take you to the group WMS. <laughs> That's right. I, yeah. I, I just think that it's astounding, and you know, it is at this astounding. particular time where our airports are getting more and more secure and less and less accessible to uh, the average person, we really you know, need to think we, about accommodating they, those people who just want to go and look. Yeah, they are they are scared to death of all of us little six thousand pound and under, you know, class one, class two airplanes, because you never know when we might get together and wage a mass assault. I mean, when you at, think about it, we all, belong to a, we all belong to a suspicious organization. Well, about 75% of us belong to a suspicious organization with ties to lobbying Congress, donating money to politicians, and using uh, weird words like individual rights and freedom of movement. You know what that means. <laughs> big no-no. Well, yes, indeed. Yep, you can't live in the land of the free and the home of the brave if you're going to talk about individual liberty. Yeah. Speaking of uh, of aviation organizations, Craig, did were you at the uh, AOPA Expo last week? Oh, absolutely. We we go there every. How? Every year. What What was the show like this year? What was uh, What was the feeling out there? Well, uh, to me, um, you know, being in California, uh, the. The California ones, which happen every second year out on the West Coast, are the ones I look forward to in terms of displays and sales. Obviously, being a, an exhibitor out there, I'm interested in people seeing our service and signing up. Uh, and we find when we're in California, we typically sign up two or three times more clients than when we're in Florida or Hartford or anywhere on the East Coast. Really? I'm sorry, why is that, do you think? Um... Well, there's a I much higher concentration uh, of airplanes out there I mean, than most other parts California, of the country, maybe, except Florida. That's right. California has a, a huge number of planes. And what I find, well, let me get back to that question in one second. Um, to answer the first question, uh, the shows definitely seemed a little smaller than past shows. It was in a hall I'd never been in in San Jose. So I, I'd never been in that one. And it seemed a little smaller, but there was a lot of traffic. Uh, we were busy... Um, Probably 90 to 95 percent of the time, we had people in our booth and we were talking, and between two of us, we still couldn't service all the people. What wasn't happening, which is true to the whole economy, is people were not committing and signing up for our services. And that was was uh, quite interesting. I mean, we did obviously have some clients, but significantly less than any yeah. other California show we've ever done. So it was busy, but not a lot of buyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, and I think that was reflected across most of the vendors. Right. Um, any other any other sort of feelings from the show other than other than your reaction as an exhibitor? I mean, you probably didn't get much chance to see anything other than being in your booth the whole time, though. Right? Yeah, I'm the, I, because uh, uh, in response to current economy, we took less people to California. I was in the booth a lot more than I normally am. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't have a lot of time to wander around and look for anything new. So I'm the wrong person to be reporting on it. Mm-hmm. I can tell you what the inside of my booth looked like. <laughs> yeah, I've done booth duty at these shows. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so, you know, it, 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 it seemed like a lovely place to have a show. It, uh, it was uh, a lovely area. It was nice to be somewhere a little different from, from the norm. 
Um, but that's as, as much as I can tell you about new. Yeah. Were the static displays, were they at, at San Jose uh, uh, Airport? Yeah, they were at San Jose International, were... which I, of course, didn't get to. Uh, the closest I came was looking at the airline. I was uh, okay. seeing them all parked there. That's an airport that's somewhat notorious for, for trying to shoo general aviation off the field. And I, th- I just find it interesting that such a big exhibit took place there. And, uh, yeah, that is interesting. I don't I think Green Hill View is big enough to handle it anymore. Well, there is, yeah, there's certainly, well, they could have done it like at Moffat or something like that, but uh, that's a whole other controversy. Well, you know, it was interesting because it's such a big airport, and when you looked at where the static display was, it was like you know, a pimple on the property. Uh, was a, a really small space. I didn't see all the planes parked there, so I don't know what the um, the fly-in uh, saturation was during the show. Um, I can't imagine that the fly-ins came into San Jose. My my guess would be that they came into like Reed or Palo Alto or something yes, like that. No, I mean I did see a, the the approach. Interestingly, at that airport is right over the downtown. I mean, right. the air, aircraft come screaming over all the hotels. And yeah, conventions. it's pretty impressive, isn't it? Very nice, and I certainly did see a fair number of smaller planes mixed in with the big guys yeah. any time I got to see the sky. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'm sure that some people went in, but you know, I also noticed a lot of people drove in because it's such a saturated area. Um, you know, it's no big deal to drive from Oakland or San Francisco or. Uh, oh, that's nothing. Californians, Californians will jump in their car and do drive three hours for a day trip in you know, one way. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, so. You know, I found a lot of people to drove in. Yeah. So, well, that's interesting. People in California drive three hours to get to work. Yeah. yeah that's right. Well, maybe not so quite, the but of, of the, of it's the only ten months. Yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see any of you guys there. Were any of you there? No, we I couldn't. Didn't, I didn't get out there. No, no. I don't know if you. I, I was all set up until about ten days ahead of the show, and some a lot of stuff came up and had to pull the plug. Yeah. So. Yeah. Do you know Craig? Do you know Will Hawkins, who does the Pilot Flight Podlog, another one of the aviation podcasts? Uh, no, I don't know. Yeah, you might have. Well, anyways, he was out there. He was doing a lot of coverage and uh, posted a lot of stuff on his blog, and I'm sure he's got some stuff coming on his podcast. Anyways, we'll hear more about, about AOP Expo. And there is one aspect of it I want to talk about a little bit later on, but let's move on to a different subject here. So this hang is... On. Uh, hang on. Yeah. Okay. This is a. This is sort of. I don't know. This. You know. I mean. I. I. I hate to make jokes about this because people died. But it's. If this is true, this is like totally the stupid pilot trick of the week. Um, this is the uh, Cessna 172 accident in Israel from a while back, and they suddenly have issued a report saying that the ca- The primary cause of the accident was that the person who was sitting in the right-hand front seat tried to. This is in flight tried to climb over between the seats to get into the back seat and in the process jammed the controls or something like that. Let's see if I can read a little bit of here. Officials with Israel's Civil Aviation Authority say they're fairly certain they know why a Cessna 172 crashed last month. Uh, they And then jumping ahead here, it says... Um, According to Ynet News report issued on October 22nd, accident states that one of the passengers tried to move from the right seat of the 172 to a seat in the rear. As he tried to change position, he apparently hit the control yoke, setting off a disastrous chain of events. Um, sounds like it was pretty ugly. My question is, uh, how did they know this? You know, like everybody on the airplane. Very good question. Everybody on the airplane died. Found the one guy unstrapped with his feet crunched against the instrument panel, lying between the seats. I guess, but I would think that in an in, in, in an incident like this, there's 
I don't know, maybe they did say strapped in or not strapped in. Or, um, and I know these folks who investigate accidents are really good at figuring out, the, looking at the result and, and figuring out what happened. But, I mean, they go into some detail here. Let's see if I can read two paragraphs here. It says, the investigation found that during the flight back to the, I'm sorry, the Herzliya, Herzliya Airfield, the passenger seated next to the pilot moved towards the back seat, inadvertently causing the plane's nose to go up. To compensate, the pilot pushed the steering rod, I like that, the steering rod forward, resulting in the passenger either tripping onto or accidentally shifting the right rod down. I'm assuming by rod they mean the control yoke. Uh, The aircraft entered a steep spiral to the right from approximately 130 excuse me, 1,000 feet AGL. The CIA says the female pilot, identified as, I won't say her name, but had little or no hope of regaining control. Um, It just seems like a lot. Maybe they had witnesses on the ground that saw what happened and they were able to kind of recreate the scene from that. But, uh, I mean... I I don't know how they would be able to be so detailed. You could kind of imagine what's happening. Well, it could have something to do with the position they found remains and crash conditions in. Yeah, yeah. I, you know. Okay, like uh, there have been times when the NTSB was able to determine which person actually had a hold of the controls when the airplane hit the ground because impact caused the elevator to snap up really quickly and hard, mm-hmm. which pushed the yoke backward, breaking the wrists of the person mm. that had a hold of it. I see. Uh, you know, there's a lot of little details that can come out of a crash investigation that can tell them a lot about what was happening and you know yeah is the the initial pitch down or the initial pitch up uh, you know if they found a person halfway between the seats and their foot in a yoke yeah that might be kind of a telling piece of uh, uh, material to, to help round out the story. Well, that that uh, that makes sense. Uh, you know, an insurance company once told me when I was changing planes that uh, if I was flying from the left seat and there was an instructor flying from the right seat and the instructor wasn't or one of us wasn't supposed to be flying and we did have an accident, they could tell. And they went into a lot of similar detail using the rudder pedals as an example. Hmm. By what, you know, what happens to the feet of the person who's doing the controlling, and that way they figure out who is actually flying. Yeah, that makes sense. You mean people are supposed to? You mean you're supposed to put your feet on, on the, the on the pedals? Yeah, that's maybe yeah, no, that's, that's, that's what, what I've been doing wrong all these years. I always thought no they were for the airplane to, to go left. But let's just let's just add this to our list of of things you don't do. All right, I mean, it, 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 trying to change seats while in flight. I mean, just what were they thinking? Seventy-two, seven twenty-seven. But no problem. One seventy-two, yeah, not like, so much. Yeah, I, I don't know how you, you just think of three adults in the back momentarily on the one seventy-two. Right, right. How anyone maneuvers around over there? Yeah, kind of a, a weird situation. Yeah, and I've I've done some shooting from the front seat of a one seventy-two, and I don't like it. Uh, but I needed to switch sides and climbed into the back. You did. But, yeah, but the, the back seat was empty. There was nobody back there, A, so we had no risk of CG issues. Second, well, we had it all laid out in advance how this was going to happen. I was going to push my seat back on the rails mm-hmm. and then lay the seat down as far as it would go if it was one that, you know, reclined at all. 
or tilted back, and then I was going to slide over the back, and the pilot was going to move over and put the seat in the position he wanted it in, and then I was going to reverse the process and climb into the left seat. Uh, it was all very carefully orchestrated, and we did it with nobody in formation with anybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did, you know, experience a little excursion from the trimmed airspeed. Yeah, put above the ground. Yeah, because I had just one time I had when I was flying with a non-pilot friend, uh, and and she was in the right seat, and and she was just having a blast looking out the air out the windows and twisting around and turning and having a good old time. And at one point, she inadvertently bumped the oak, and she gave it, you know, and she only gave it like a two or three inch, you know, move. But of course, that was enough to give us both a really good thrill. And uh, you know, it kind of looked got the con- airplane under control. And I kind of looked at her and I said, "Don't do that." And uh, yeah, you, know, you can bump a yoke or a stick forward and backward, and it, it should cycle a couple of times, but generally be headed back to trimmed airspeed. Yeah. But if you whack yeah. roll out of sync really badly, it's going to go places. Yep. yep. Yeah, but here, uh, look at it this way. They don't tell you how experienced the young woman who was flying the plane was. Well, that's true, and, too. You know, some of that would also uh, go towards the reaction. But assume the guy goes to the back and... As he's moving to the back, he kind of slips him, you know, his shoulders go forward and his legs go up. And the combination of both him moving to the backward, back, uh, moving his weight back with two people already there and possibly touching the yoke with his heel as he, as he fell over could make the plane go up. And she might have had quite an overreaction in terms of the way that she would correct that, which well, could have made him fall properly. And there's the result. Absolutely. When he's falling properly, he lose control of of where his limbs are, and at a thousand feet, you know, we think a thousand feet is pretty high, but you stick a nose straight down at a thousand feet, and it's second. Yep. You know, if you pitch over to, you know, six or seven hundred feet per minute, uh, that thousand feet, and and it start accelerating, that thousand feet can go away pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and then and you're going to start situation. feeling weightless even quicker than that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's conceivable. I mean, they probably just went through endless analysis. But I'd say the body positions were probably the, the telling. Yeah. So the lesson here, kiddies, is fellow aviators, don't try this at home. Yeah, really, really. So speaking of unusual attitudes, um, they're uh, trying to wrap up the test program and the certification, I guess the certification or something for the, um, the Airbus uh, A380. And uh, apparently the uh, the powers that be want to... Cr- so we've all heard of a heavy. Uh, 747s, I guess, are heavy. I'm not sure exactly what cat- air- aircraft fall into the category of heavy. Um, but there... Well, there's a weight There's a weight limit there. Yeah, and apparently they want to categorize... There are, there are those who want to categorize the uh, A380 as a, as a... I believe they want to call it a super heavy um, because they claim that it creates larger than... Uh, wake turbulence that's more significant than a traditional heavy. Um, Airbus, of course, is trying to convince them that that's not the case and it shouldn't be singled out like this. But uh, let's, uh, let's go look up the aim while we're on talking about this one. Yeah, you think the aim defines heavy? I guess it probably. Oh, yeah. I thought there was another category above heavy. Above, you mean a super heavy? No, well, not so much super. I don't know what the FAA calls it. Uh, it sounds from reading the articles that they, they haven't been asleep at the wheel in terms of testing. I mean, 
they've flown a huge number of wake turbulence tests on the aircraft. Airbus has, you and, mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it doesn't seem like they've documented anything unusual. Right. Um, and so it does seem a little strange that these uh, extended spacing requirements are being uh, foisted on the aircraft, if that's the case. Yeah, um, yeah. And I don't know, do you say, I don't trust Airbus testing? That doesn't make sense, because basically certifica certification is self-testing with oversight. It's not so much that I don't trust Airbus's testing, it's just that they have a vested financial interest in the results coming out the, the way that they have apparently come out. And uh, I, I'm skeptical. Well, is, is, there, is there someone looking at it from the other side that has a strong vested interest that they make it as uncomfortable for the A380? I mean, this could be uh, lobbying from Boeing that's pushing it the other way, not the Airbus way. Well, you, you, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Uh, I don't know if uh, Boeing is lobbying this. I kind of doubt they are because... Um, because uh, the, um, their plate's pretty full right now with other their things. Their plate's pretty full right now, yeah. But, uh, um, you know, they've got some, some heavy aircraft, super heavy aircraft on the drawing boards. And um, I don't know where they fall in this, this wake turbulence uh, uh, avoidance issue. Uh, I can't... Uh, still well, interestingly enough, they, they said that 747s can... Uh, be in fairly close trail to an A380, but smaller planes have to have a seven-mile trail. Hmm. Um, and uh, okay, here we go. Aircraft with a maximum certificated takeoff weight of 300,000 pounds or more yeah. classified as heavy. Yeah. Those between 15,000 and 300,000 are classified as medium. Those below 15,000 are, are classified as light. And that's for the purposes of wake turbulence separation. So there's no category above heavy? No. Uh, so it's just it's 300,000 and above. Right, 300,000 and above, which takes in a lot when you consider that, uh, you know, the maximum gross weight of a 747-400 is... Like you know, somewhere in the 800,000, 900,000 pound yeah. territory. Yeah. David, just for the record, what's the chapter and verse there the, out of AIM that you're reading? I'm not reading out of AIM. I'm yeah. reading out of an ICAO reference. Well, the International okay. Civil Aviation right. Organization. Yeah. And it does well, also say that this is not uh, actually an American initiative that's going on here, even though this is a well, Honolulu-based it's uh, the International Federation of Airworthiness mm -hmm. um, that that's talking about it. So, yeah, so the, I the thought this came internally. <laughs> yeah, the 380s max takeoff weight, according to the Wikipedia entry, is uh, uh, 1.235 million pounds. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a 747 400 goes in the neighborhood of 900,000. Uh, I, I was on a 400 once out of JFK to Osaka. This was a long time ago. And I talked to the crew at one point, and yeah, it was their, their gross takeoff coming out of JFK was, was on the order of um, 900,000 pounds. Um, they burned 970,000. Yeah, they burned 600,000 pounds going to Osaka and landed 
you know, uh, three hundred thousand. So right. But but Airbus's point is that wake turbulence is not strictly speaking a function of weight. That that there are other considerations. Probably, well, you know, airfoil shape. That's true. Dash eight, uh, according to Wikipedia, the four hundred R is nine hundred and ten thousand pounds takeoff mm-hmm. weight. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, a lot of things go into wake turbulence: uh, the airfoil, the weight, the configuration, the speed. Uh, and I thought a lot of it had to do with the the, the wingtip design as well. No, that's, that's right. That's right. Not all wake <laughs> turbulence is created equal. You remember the uh, 757? Uh, shortly after it went into service, there was a, a concern that. There was something about its design that was generating stronger than than uh, stronger vortices than would be typical for the aircraft's weight and configuration, and I think there is a special. I don't know if there's a special rule or if there's just a wink and a nod kind of thing associated with the seven five, uh, where the people tend to give it a little bit more um, uh, space, um, but. Um, It'd be nice to to fly some heavy seven fours and a three eighty side by side, <clears throat> and and put them through one of those smoke uh, trails like was done so many times. Mm-hmm. Oh, I still so remember fam- seeing so the FAA seven twenty seven demonstrator do that. Right. Yeah. Um, and and just kind of see and you know, of course measure them and and uh, uh, I, I think what we're going to find is uh, you know for all intent and purpose anything that's uh, you know, I don't know, six hundred, seven hundred fifty thousand pounds or greater, probably needs to be in that arena. Yeah, I think I think when I'm flying my one fifty two, I'm going to keep my distance in any event. Well, there's that's the punchline. Well, yeah. Well, and for our purposes, the main things to remember, you know, in, in addition to di- distance, is uh, you want to take off before its liftoff point, right? And land under its, t- you know, land behind its touchdown point, mm-hmm. and you'd be good to go. No, you, you mean stay land below its glide the- path. Land, land beyond its touchdown. Right. Below its glide path and touchdown short. And, All right, Dave, uh, we'll have to do a 709 ride on you. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the wake turbulence sinks as the aircraft right. progresses along. So you don't want to be under its path. You need to be right. higher than its landing path, so you need to land beyond well, only if you're going to land beyond its touchdown point. Right. Yeah, that's what I... And are you if suggesting you that there's a way... touchdown point, you have the risk of running into its wake but turbulence. If I'm if I'm underneath it and land well behind its touchdown point, I'm never going to see that. Well, most of them land at the end of the runway. So where are you going to land? Oh, they before don't. the runway. No, they don't. They never land at the end of the. David runway. David likes to live life dangerously here. I'm going to land beyond them myself. But, uh, maybe maybe we just put our finger on something. Maybe this is why I've never flown with David. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Hey, the touchdown marks are there for a reason to put your black tires on. <laughs> yeah, well, let the, let the 747 put their black tires on there, and we'll put no, ours no, on no, 500 that's foot the nice further. part about it, because they're going to be they're going to be 1,500 feet down the runway, particularly if they stay on the glide slope. Yeah, and not if they land at Newark, they're not. They're going to get it in the first 500 feet. All right, David, take a drink. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> Please. So I'm going to open up the can of worms here. Um, we've in, we've we've invested a lot of time to this over the last couple episodes. So unless there's something really new and interesting, let's just kind of do the highlights here. David, what's going on with TSA's uh, large aircraft security program? Oh well, the good news is the uh, the TSA 
uh, acted on the joint petition by the National Business Aviation Association and our friends at the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Uh, it granted an extension of the comment period and now runs out to February 27. That's an extra 60 days, aviators, to make our two cents, our polite two cents worth it. Not quite what we were hoping for, but maybe better than nothing. How well, many we, times we can you really say strong? We didn't expect them to fold their tent. That would have been the right answer, but we didn't yeah. expect them to do that. Yeah. How many times can you say, screw you, strong letter to follow in the next 120 days? <laughs> Over and over and over again. <laughs> the, good news, the good news, there's some good news here for us. And there is. We've got a changing of the guard coming during that comment period. And by the time this thing you know, closes out and the comments start to get digested and sifted through the system, there should be different people in charge. Uh, that sounds that like a pretty good point to me. There's not going to be a, a big change in the attitude of the career civil servants that actually run things, but we know that changes in philosophy up high can influence what happens down below. I mean, it happens every four years, so or eight years in this case. Uh, so that's good for our side. The best news for our side would be for them to just say, you know, slap our head. You know, we're wrong. We, we really don't have to treat every one of you like a freaking enemy of the state. <laughs> See, poor David gets all worked up every time. We, I mean, you should get worked up a little bit. I'm not, but... Uh, I, I, I can't not get worked up over this. Everybody should be worked up over this. We try. should always be polite and engaging in conversation about it. Screw you, strong letter to follow. <laughs> not being worked up about it is not a proper response because we're talking about an encroachment of constitutional proportions here. Yep. And that's that's all I want to belabor it. And, and while we're, we're talking about it, uh, the nice folks that are running the show right now are also rushing really hard to uh, uh, enshrine in permanence their their hope the uh, air defense identification zone around our nation's capital. The, the nice no folks purpose except running to kill the show. GA and hassle GA pilots. Yeah. What's the so? What's the story with that? This is the Washington D.C. eight is that we've talked a lot about over the years. Um, that just really ties up the whole area, including a, a bunch of small airports that don't deserve it. And uh, what? Well, they're so, working really hard to get the rule through the final hurdles with the Office of Management and Budget. That's a place where things get sent to be ruled on according to the philosophy of the ruling White House. And if they say on a cost-benefit analysis, oh, no, this is perfectly affordable, then it's kind of the last gasp argument against doing it. And the FAA will make the ADIS, you know, the temporary ADIS, as we were told for years, uh, into a permanent fixture on our on, on our charts and and, and uh, uh yeah, plates and a permanent fixture in the hassle of any private aircraft operator that wants to fly into the D.C. area. Jeb, what do you hear from your D.C. friends about this whole thing? Not a whole lot. I, I just heard um, before we went on the air, actually, or before we before we got on the phone call, um, there's a, a notum this weekend that basically shuts down general aviation in the Washington area. Um and this is apparently the G20 meeting or something. And as is that related? To, there's a big one around New York City. Is it today or tomorrow or soon it's or this something? This weekend, I don't know exactly which. I have no intention whatsoever. This is the worldwide going, global economic 
Uh, yeah. Oh, I, that's I have, what it is. I have okay. no intention of being within 500 miles of either location this weekend, so I don't really care. That's uh, only because you moved. Uh-huh. No, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't disagree. Uh, so, someone pointed out that, you know, it's, it's so that they can get together and, and uh, fix the economy. And if, you know, we had any of these little planes flying around, that the economy would be in tatters. And then they said, oh, wait a second. Um, wait a second. Isn't the economy already in tatters? But anyway. Bad. Don't little airplanes <laughs> flying around contribute to the economy? Well, you know. Don't little airplanes flying around represent money being spent. And that's right. Some, some, some would think so. Some would think so. But the aid is, um, I don't know, gosh, it's, what, 18 months or so ago, the FAA proposed to make the aid is permanent. And they did like the TSA is doing now, um, proposed this new rule and uh, asked for public comments. Um, I'm being charitable when I say this, that, that the FAA might have gotten 20 comments in favor of making the aid is permanent and maybe 20,000 comments opposed to making it permanent. And according to this article at the AOPA website, uh, the FAA... Um, uh, let me put it another way. The AOPA, the AOPA is fearful that the the uh, FAA will make this rule permanent uh, just days before Obama takes office on January 20. Um, it's actually part of a pattern uh, and, yeah, and a yeah. collection of, a, of about 85 to 95 rule changes that the administration is trying to rush through. I think that's uh, a conservative on a, on a time value. basis and in a structure. Uh, that they think will make them permanent, or uh. and, and we know will only make them difficult to undo. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing in the way of law or regulation is permanent. Uh, not, in, not in the United States of America. We've seen that, that pretty concretely in the last several years. Uh, but they, you know, it's part of a whole group of things that they've been wanting to do that are not popular, that are opposed by widespread portions of the population. The disparity ratio between the negative comments and the positive comments on the Washington Aides are a perfect example of something that they're going to go ahead and ram through and tell us that it's for our own good, and their analysis shows that it has no economic harm, and it's really to the benefit of the nation, and we all should be happy about it because they're doing it for us in spite of ourselves. Lie down and, and enjoy it. Yeah, and yeah. then they're gonna they're gonna leave town on the twentieth, and I hope none of them can find jobs. Well, uh, so, <laughs> speaking Do you of, think that Obama's administration would have a different position on the Washington Aiders? I don't. Well, why, why would you think he? I mean, he's not a general aviation person, even though he's used it a lot in recent times. I would like to think that he might be more more open to being influenced by those of us who have a different opinion. I mean, and not, and, 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 saying, I think there's a question of balance here that's been missing that's about to be restored. There's a yeah. balance in attitude, and a balance in thinking, a balance in philosophy that we haven't seen in, in, in a number of years. And that in, in itself is in our favor. Yeah. Second, he listens to people of opposing positions and then tries to find workable solutions. That I look at as working in our favor. Uh, because we've been dealing with folks who listen to opposing position and smile and say, thanks, you're wrong, and then just go ahead and do whatever they freaking want. Yeah. Well, Craig, I'm sorry, Craig, we cut you off. Craig, what were you saying? Uh, no, no, you didn't. Go ahead. Uh, I actually wonder about uh, about how many of the 
legislators used planes to come international all the time and whether there I have some special disposition to still use the airport whereas us slobs who used to go there all the time can't well, sure they do sure so, they do they, you know, they, if you're if you're a senator and you have a jet you can still go into Reagan yeah absolutely well and there are more than there have been at times a number of members of Congress who actually used their personal airplanes to commute home to their home districts on weekends and during work periods and holidays when Congress wasn't in session and uh, those those guys were priceless yeah. in terms of injecting yeah. a little reality into the debate and fortunately we have one of those we have one of those right now out of Missouri uh, who I believe survived uh, November 4th and uh, I shot the guy at Oshkosh uh, coming in on a 450 horse steerman. For those who don't know, he meant he took his picture. But okay, go ahead. His photograph. <laughs> yes, sorry. And now I'm going blank on the gentleman's name. Graves, Sam Graves. Uh, I believe he's from Missouri. Republican. Nice guy. Very sharp. Uh, it was one of the voices that petitioned uh, the uh, TSA to extend the comment period. Uh, and I don't imagine that that could have hurt, the, you know, the minimal decision to extend the comment period at all to have a member of Congress saying, uh, "Time well, out, wait a minute." David, David, time out a sec. Time out yourself. The TSA put this 60-day comment period in there so that they could extend it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all of, all of the big things that they're working on right now are are on even shorter leashes. Right. Uh, you know, they put the 60-day comment period on here, A, so they could extend it, and B, because they really don't care how long the comment period is, they're, they're going to they're gonna do what they want to do anyway, if exactly. they have their way. Yeah. Let's move along here, because we're running out of time. Um, and there's, taking a drink. There's at least one thing I really want to talk about here, but um, before we finish up on all this federal stuff here, Jeb, you called our attention to a story talking about uh, some of the things that, that President-elect Obama will take over when he takes office and and you put the headline Obama concern trolls uh, onto it can you tell us briefly what you were thinking here this is a piece here in the uh, Chicago Tribune Um, and um, the headline is president-elect will face a multitude of airline sector woes well I got a warm flash for the writer and Julie Johnson the president-elect's gonna face a multitude of woes in every sector and I think the airline industry, despite the importance the uh, airline employees might find uh, with those woes, um, their woes actually come you know, way far down the list of problems uh, confronting this country right now. But um, to, 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 I guess, kind of bring this into focus, at least from my my standpoint, is all of the people talking about all these airline industry woes are not coincidentally airline industry employees. Um, and here's here's an ALPA um, um, person, here's a, a business travel coalition, represents corporate travel purchasers. Um, I can't make my browser scroll downward for, here we go. Um, Talking about FAA funding and uh, um, um, international investment in, in domestic airlines, et cetera. These are these are problems that we've had for eons in the airline industry. Um, this is nothing new under the sun. 
it's it's more than a little disingenuous as far as I'm concerned um, to think that uh, a President Obama is going to drop everything and, and address the ills of the airline industry uh, soon after taking office. Yeah, um, it was a shock to me to find out that this country really only has one form of aviation. Yeah, well... Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, right. uh, and there's there's been a lot of other. And, and the whole thing just makes my head explode. Um, talking about you know what you know we got to fix this, we got to fix that, we got to fix the other thing. Again, shut up. Now, where well, were you six and four years ago? When where were you, you know, eighteen months ago? Last yeah, year, two years when, ago? When you had a chance to really do something and really change something, or where have you been? You know, why are you just speaking up now? Just shut up and sit down, and, and we'll get to it. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. Here's the subject. So, so Craig, you, you alluded to this uh, earlier in the or at the beginning of the podcast um, about your airplane being offline right now. Yeah, I want to I hear more about this. So what's the story here? You're being abused by the system? That never happens. Uh, no, it never happens. <laughs> it never happens to me. <laughs> Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, what, well, what, airplane, what airplane is this? What engine is this? And what, what's, what's the deal? It's a Turbo 182RG, and it's got a, an 0540 engine in it. Okay. All right. Uh, with ECI cylinders. Uh-huh. All right. And uh, I acquired the plane uh, about a year and a bit ago, and uh, the owner was very pleased to tell me that there was an AD on the cylinders just before I purchased it. <laughs> um and uh, requiring him to replace all six cylinders. Okay. And so I was very happy about getting a plane with brand new cylinders on them. All right. Uh-huh. Um, so well, he, he did the AD before you bought it? He did the AD. I think it was sometime late 05 or early 06 that an AD was issued against the aircraft. Okay. Or against the engine. And it only applied to aircraft that had ECI cylinders. All right. Um, well, lo and behold, uh, last month a new AD was issued. Uh, against aircraft that have this engine and several other types and ECI cylinders. Mm. And uh, the way it works with my aircraft is there's a, based on was either 34 or 45 different failures that have occurred, there's 45. a need to uh, either address it through repetitive inspections or to replace your cylinders at some lesser time limit, which I may speaking uh, incorrectly, but I think it's 300 hours or 350 hours. So so the well, fact that these are new cylinders as of two or three years ago doesn't get you anything? Yeah, new cylinders, they have 147 hours on them, and lo and behold, they fall into the category of cylinders which, whether it's now or whether it's in a, uh, 100 hours or so, they have to be ripped off and sent back to ECR for replacement. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and the plane was in for its annual when this was found, when we found this new AD. Uh, and frankly, if there was something potentially wrong with my cylinders, I didn't want them anyway. So I said, okay, pull them off and send them back to ECI. Um, well, lo and behold, replacing cylinders for uh, an aircraft with six cylinders is around about $8,000 plus labor. So it could get up to nine or $10,000. Um, and... You know, if, if an idea happens, it happens, and we pay for it, and there's prorating and all the rest. So I end up being out of pocket for about $2,000 based on the fact that these are low-time cylinders and uh, with some labor allowance and, and so on and so forth. However, 
I wouldn't mind so much, except that this is the second time in three years. Yeah. And when I don't get it right the first time, and I'm still flying behind faulty cylinders, and yet again I have to lay out another $2,000. I'm saying as if I laid out the first. Obviously, the person who owned it before me, who was one of my clients, laid it out. (coughs) But that doesn't matter. It was laid out against this plane. Uh, What does ECI say? ECI basically gave me a whole story about what the failure was and how unnecessary the AD was and this, that, the next thing, and pay up and get your cylinders. Uh, I did go and see them at uh, at uh, Expo, Expo, and you know they were really nice. They took me to their booth. They showed me what was wrong. They talked lots of technical stuff to me, some of which went over my head. Um, they told me what they're doing differently, but there was no concession. Um, it's basically, hey, we're prorating this. You should be happy, um, but I'm not because at the time yeah. the engine goes for overhaul, that prorating doesn't help me. I'm basically going to be overhauling cylinders that have, uh, you know, probably 800 hours in an engine that's got 2,000 hours. So, so is I'm anybody not really getting action suit? Well, I, I don't know. I haven't heard any other owners complaining. I did contact AOPA to ask them about it, um, and I was the first. As far as AOPA was aware, this was going to be completely free to the owners of aircraft affected. I think primarily because this was a second whammy. Um, you've got to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were surprised to hear from the AOPA. And, uh, you know, they looked into it a little bit, and the guy got back to me, and he said, yes, I understand you being prorated, and this, that, the next thing. We'll get back to you because this is not fair, and that's the last I ever heard of them, heard hmm. from them. So, um, you know, I don't know how uh, useful AOPA is going to be to me. I haven't heard or found any other owners, and I'd, I did meet a lot of, um, uh, owners of uh, 182 RGs with the same engine at, in California, and not one of them had ECI cylinders, so <laughs> most of them were sitting pretty. Um, but the bottom line is, I think that this is incredibly unfair to people uh, who are trying their best to keep their plane in top-notch condition and you know do it on a limited budget, and to get hit by this twice is is not fair. You know, you know, first thing that comes to my mind, buddy is that I'd think long and hard before I even put cheaper because they were pro-rated ECIs back on that engine. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. well here's the problem. It's it's $8,000 to go out and buy some other cylinders. And mm-hmm. there's no way I can afford uh, $8,000. Now, I haven't budgeted for $8,000. Um, whereas this costing me $2,000 around uh, about to, to replace it with these new upgraded ECI cylinders. So, you know, whether I can put them on or not, I like to take a little bit of naive comfort and say, okay, well, the second time they have to get it right. Um, you know, my real concern is this should have just been a warranty fix. They should have just yeah. recalled the cylinders and fixed them. But if they go the FAA route and it's suddenly mandated, I think that relieves them of a lot of the financial burden. Uh, well, and I, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure it relieves them of a financial burden or not. But uh, there would seem to be some some uh, uh, remedy available via lawsuit. It wouldn't there. That's the you, question you, I you asked. Know, maybe, uh, maybe you know, to, to both you and Dave. Maybe, but you know, uh, I mean, there's not a lot of people who are running to go and spend thousand dollars on 
doing a lawsuit that may or may not yeah. Yeah. bring anything. Can you, can you tell me this? Can you, can you get AD insurance for your airplane? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm so pleased that I made you laugh tonight, David. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I was just thinking of the extended warranty program that that would be. <laughs> would you like to insure your airplane against future ADs and past yeah, failures right. to upgrade to ADs? Well, yeah, I would actually. Where do I sign? Only ninety-nine a month for ninety-nine years. Uh-huh. You know, right. I've always looked at the guys who had commanders and twin Cessnas that were subject to huge wing spar ads, and I've always felt yeah. so sorry for them. Mm-hmm. At least I'm nowhere near that where suddenly the whole plane's going to come in pieces and it's going to be thirty or forty thousand dollars later. You know what I think it is? I think it's Caldwell Airport. I think James <laughs> James had a big bill <laughs> recently <laughs> as well, and so I think there's something going on at that airport. That's well, and, and, yeah, you know, uh, we fly differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Craig, if it's any consolation, um, you're not the only um, piston aircraft engine owner who's who's faced with this kind of a problem. Um, there's a, a proposed AD out there that would affect my cylinders. Um, I don't know. I, right off the top of my head, I don't know the status. But... Uh, you know, in, in a in a fashion similar to uh, to your decision to purchase your airplane because it had new cylinders on it, uh, I had my re- my engine rebuilt back in uh, I guess it was O two, and um, when I had it rebuilt, um, it, one of the reasons I had it rebuilt is I'd suffered two cracked cylinders, and these were not coincidentally ECI cylinders that had cracked. Now put this in perspective, some of these cylinders, uh, these particular the two cylinders on my airplane, uh, probably were second or third run cylinders. They had been, uh, as I understand it, new manufactured by TCM, Teledyne Continental Motors, and then ECI took them as trades, reconditioned them, treated them with their special uh, spiffy-diffy process, and um, repainted them recertified them and sold them as as refurbished cylinders uh they they were on my airplane when i bought it um couple of cracks developed one uh crack in uh, i guess uh i don't know uh oh oh one oh two and then uh another crack in oh three i guess the engine actually was replaced in oh three um and another cylinder i lost in oh three and that was a big to do but um um when I had the engine rebuilt, I looked around at all the cylinder options that were out there. And, I, and uh, uh, at the time, uh, everybody, all the, the hot lick was, everybody was talking about the hot lick was uh, the superior uh, Millennium cylinders. The, the TCM cylinders were okay, but from the factory, you needed to go through them, and you needed to do, you know, X, Y, and Z kind of work to them so that you get some longevity out of them. Uh, the ECI cylinder is pretty much the same thing, um, but the hot lick really was the superior millenniums. They float a little bit better. They didn't have any cracking issues, yada, yada, yada. So I bit the bullet and bought six brand-new superior millenniums, put them on the airplane, and I will say that the airplane performed well, um, and in fact, I've not had a lick of issues with the cylinders. Um uh, the last annual, everything, I think the lowest compression on, on any of the six was 72 pounds. 
which is phenomenal for uh, um, um, the length of time that the airplane sits sometimes. So I, I was really happy, and I, I still am happy with those cylinders. But all of a sudden, there's this proposed AD. You know, again, there's this possibility of a crack uh, in these cylinders, just as there are, perhaps, I guess, just about any cylinder out there that's put on an aircraft piston engine. And uh, crack at any moment right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, Craig, I feel your pain. I I guess where I would come down on all this is that the FAA needs to sit down and shut up, too. Uh, and that these cylinders aren't all going to crack at the same time. Uh, all six of them aren't going to crack at the same time and render the airplane, you know, a smoking hole in the ground. Uh, if one of them cracks while the airplane's airborne, you land, okay? And you replace the cylinder and you check out the rest of the engine. Um, a, a, a likelihood that something like this is going to crack um, even based on whatever it is, 45 failures over some period of time, um, do the math. Um, I, I come down thinking that a lot of this stuff is unnecessary. I also come down thinking I don't have any truck with, with ECI. I don't, uh, um, I don't know if their products are good or bad or whatever. I, I, I tend to think they're good. Uh, a lot of people like ECI products. They've been around for a long time. Uh, they've been, a lo- been around a long time. Um, but, um, you know, stranger things have happened. And uh, we, we had a, a bad batch of cylinders get out. We cranks at, right. for, at one right. point. And, and continental cranks. Right. Uh, right. You know, it, it seems to go around to almost everybody at some point right. or another. And I admit, there's, there's a little bit of a roll of the dice to having one of these things and finding out whether, you know, you got snake eyes on the latest roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, so you're not, it's right, exactly I'm right. It's not something that commends us to, you know, to the general public as, as, as an attraction. So what's the prognosis, Craig? Are, um, how, when do you get your airplane back? Um, I don't know. We're waiting for the cylinders, and we don't have a delivery date yet. So. Oh, the cylinders the haven't been delivered? cylinders out before they would send the new cylinders back to us. Oh Christ! Well, they didn't. They didn't trust us. <laughs> I see. Well, but here's another interesting thing that uh, happened with regard to this plane. Um, There's more. You, know, you, you guys, you guys have seen me. I'm, I'm, I'm not fat, but I'm not skinny. I'm just kind of ordinary. Um, and uh, when I put on the seatbelt in my 182, I can't reach it. I can't reach the fuel. Uh, um, uh, the fuel switch, I can't uh, reach the cow flaps, and I've been moaning and complaining about this, and everybody's saying, well, this doesn't make any sense. So I asked uh, the maintenance company to uh, have the pilot's um, uh, uh, seatbelt rewebbed, and it turned out that they were rewebbed when the interior was done. They were certified as meeting all the requirements of the certification of the aircraft, and it turned out that the wrong material is in the seatbelt and that the web was too short and that the company that had done it uh, seems to have signed it off as being meeting all the requirements when it actually uh-huh. didn't. Hmm. And uh, so I've also had to pull all my seatbelts out, which were all changed at the same time, and they've all gone for rewebbing. And uh, we've asked the company that's doing the rewebbing to document exactly what they're finding. But it's uh, right in my logbook that these seatbelts were installed as uh, you know certified... Uh, meeting all the requirements uh, and 
you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back a plane where I can actually lean forward and, and yeah. operate all the controls. Well, there you go, Dave. He's going he's gonna to get that lawsuit after all. Now, that's, a, that's a more interesting that, one. You're not the first person I've talked to that had uh, seatbelts replaced as part of something else who suddenly found that they gained weight or the seatbelts had shrunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I couldn't believe that everyone who flies a 182 is a skinny milling. <laughs> well, and, and I've also heard of people that have had their airplanes reupholstered, and when they wound up with thicker foam than what they had before, that the seat belt suddenly seemed perceptibly smaller. Yeah. And it actually well, that... wasn't that the belts had shrunk in the interim. It was that they were sitting farther off the floor because of thicker foam. But I, I have heard in the past of aftermarket belts developed under STCs, uh, particularly when they come with, like, shoulder harness conversions or something like that, mm-hmm. winding up an inch or two shorter. And somebody explained to me that, you know, they didn't really think it was malicious, like, well, they save three inches of per belt here, there, and everywhere, and they make more money. As well, my understanding... When they started with the originals... Uh, they didn't allow for how much they were going to have to wrap around the anchors. And they take up a couple of inches there and a couple of inches here, and suddenly the, the belt is three or four inches shorter at its best than it was before because they didn't take into account how much they had to wrap around the anchor on both ends of each belt. Just uh, you know, theory. you may be right. However, uh, my understanding is that um, as part of the certification of a plane, it's, it's fairly clear exactly how uh, long the belts are supposed to be and what material they're supposed to be made of. Yeah. Um, and the, the seatbelt system, even though it's an inertia reel system with a shoulder harness, is the factory system. Um, and the documentation is uh, fairly clear in the logbook that these meet all the requirements that Cessna put out when the plane was built. Yeah. Um, so you know, there's a length of a belt in there, and that's something easy to measure. And I don't—they're not big reels, and they only, there's only a reel on one end. And wow. these were so constricting. There's no way this is an inch or two. Um, Interesting. At first, we and, looked and, into and, modifying and your seat the belt. Not thicker than it was before. Not overly so. Certainly, you know, <laughs> if it adds, if it adds a couple of inches. Maybe, but then again, the interior was uh, rebuilt by the best company in the business. And, um, you know, but he sends his belts out. They come back certified. He plugs them in, and that's it. Yeah. You're going to uh, keep. And he had, had to trust the vendors that he had chosen at that time. Yeah. You're going to have to keep us informed on all this stuff. We need to, we need to kind of wrap this thing up here. So let me just. Um, there, there's one other subject I want to touch on real quickly, especially while we've got Craig here. Um, and uh, this is a big subject, and we're going to go into it in depth one of these days. But, um, but for now, Craig, you just came back from AOPA Expo, and given that you spent most of your time in the booth there, did you get any sense of the crowd and of your contacts out there of what people were feeling about our new leader at AOPA, Craig Fuller, I believe is his name? Uh, that's a horrible question because I got absolutely no sense. I did ask a few people... Um, this was sort of his big coming out, right? They uh, introduced uh, yeah, him on stage, and, uh, um, and of course I wasn't wasn't there, and so um, I hate to disappoint you on this big question, but I really don't have any uh, insights. So I hope that he's going to be fantastic, and it certainly seems like he's he's got some big shoes to, to fill. Uh, that's for sure. Qualified. Yeah. So uh, I've you know, uh, I've 
I've, I've had some conversation with some folks that have worked with him in and out and some folks from inside and out. Yep. And there seems to be a tangible sense of looking forward to the new guy because he is of a different key than the old guy. What do you mean by key? Uh, intensity level. Interesting. More intense? Less intense? Less intense. Uh-huh. Uh, no less dedicated. But less intense a than Phil Boyer? style and a different management style. And uh, we'll see how that works out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wish I'd been uh, in a position where I could have gone to, to listen to him. Uh, that's all right. We won't flog you this time. We yeah. understand everybody's yeah. got to work. We'll come back and talk about this more later on, but uh, he takes over, I guess, sometime in January or something like that, and uh, um, by then we should have a chance to, to talk a little bit about this. Anyways, shout-outs. What's going on here? David, do you want to... Uh, I, I hope it's appropriate. I've moved a couple things here into the shout-outs area because uh, it seems like they might fit here. David, you, you called our attention to an interesting video on YouTube. Yeah, I hope folks get a chance to dip into it because uh, we we didn't herald this back when we should have in July. We were kind of caught in the throes of spooling up to Air Venture and Oshkosh and all that stuff. But this is the 70th anniversary year of when a uh, forgotten hero of aviation, Douglas Corrigan, <laughs> took off from New York to fly to California and inadvertently flew to Ireland. Yeah, inadvertently. We'll put big finger quotes around that, right? And Yes, and, you know, from that point on, the guy was known in book and movie fame, newspapers. He got a bigger ticker take parade when he got back from Europe than even Lindbergh got for flying to France. Douglas Wrongway Corrigan, 70 years ago this year, took off in a Curtis Robin that he bought for 300 I think it was 375 bucks. Mm-hmm. Yes, take a I'm sorry, 325 bucks in 1933, and he spent five years modifying it to do a transatlantic flight because he wanted to repeat what his hero Lindbergh had done. Mm-hmm. Authorities considered his airplane unworthy of the trip, not mm-hmm. safe, would never make it. So they gave him, uh, and apparently he had to get permission for some flights in those days, as the TSA would like us to these days. There's an irony for you. Uh, He got permission to do a transatlantic flight from California to New York and succeeded in July of 38. And a few days later, he filed the paperwork and got the official thumbs up to take off and fly back to California. And he took off in a fog mist and was, you know, it was. It, they they told him to take off to the east, so he wouldn't fly towards some buildings and uh, an over congested area, thinking that after he went east for a little while, he would turn west and fly to California. And somehow or another, he misread his company compass. I'm sorry, he misread his compass for about 2,500 miles. <laughs> 28 hours. Landed 28 hours later in Ireland where he was heralded as a hero and received with a hero's welcome. And the authorities back in the States were so ticked that they wouldn't let him fly back. He had to uh, he had to come back in, gen- in you know, uh, un- un- uh, uncharacteristically, like by ship from Ireland. The airplane in him, and he got to New York and 
the uh, folks held a ticker tape parade for him. The New York Post put him on the front page. He wrote a book called That's My Story. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sticking, sticking to it. it. <laughs> and uh, then he was the star of a movie uh, about his flight. And then later he went on to fly for our country during uh, World War II and did a yeoman's job in it. He was a real unheralded American yeah. hero. He died in, many years ago, uh, Doug Wrongway Corrigan. It's about an eight-minute movie. Uh, it's got a couple of good pieces of music in it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting video. It's always been really good for me. Uh, so, uh, 70 years ago this year, Doug Corrigan became wrong way for the rest of his life because he confused his compass and went to Ireland when he had planned to go to California. The thing I kind of admire is that is that for the rest of his life, he never he he just always said, "Hey, I went the wrong way. It was a mistake." You know, he he just stuck with the story. He stuck with the fiction, with the uh, you know kind of wink and. Uh, um, you know, it's an interesting, uh, an interesting legend to build for yourself. But I guess it satisfied him. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's they right. Really, they really worked on him to confess that he'd done this deliberately uh, when he was in Ireland and when he got back to the states. And all he would tell him was, "That's my story." That's my story. That's, that's my, my story. story. And now, when we hear that line, "That's my story," as Jeb filled in, we can't help but saying, "And I'm sticking to I'm it." I'm sticking and to he it. Did for the rest of his life. Yep. Hey, Jeb, you've got one here um, that you call our attention to an interesting little, uh, I don't know if it's a yeah. contest or a program. Um, Build a Plane, the Build a Plane Foundation, and, and oh, I'm not... Oh, Lynn Freeman! Yeah, yeah Lynn, Lynn Freeman, and the Build a Plane Foundation, and I'm not the one to really uh, uh, talk about uh, the Build a Plane Foundation. Amy's mentioned this a couple times, hasn't she? This before. Yeah. Um, uh, Build a Plane is a nonprofit organization. Um, I'm re- reading from their website here. Dedicated to promoting aviation and aerospace careers by giving young people the opportunity to build real airplanes, uh, aircraft construction and restoration, um, a formal partnership with the FAA. There's there's several other agent or organizations I should say that. Oh yeah, have, you got uh, a kit that you decided not to finish. They'll get it finished with yeah. their students. Yeah, well, exactly. what they're, one, of the, one of the things they're doing here now, and, and Craig, this is one of the reasons I uh, uh, put this on the list tonight. Um, they have a um, um, a paint scheme design contest. Uh, yes, we're co-sponsoring it with it. Yeah, so I kind of thought you might be, yeah, yeah. yeah but you were yeah. fooled by the I, logos on the drawings. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I just came across this earlier today or yesterday or something like that and thought I'd... Uh, I'll put it let on me, the list. Let me tell you how that came about. Um, yeah. They, they, they have a, uh, um, a glass air sportsman 2 plus 2 that they're going to be using in shows and whatnot to promote themselves. And uh, they'd come to me and said, would we donate the paint scheme? And we said, sure. And then I told them about a program that we did with yeah, Young Eagles for their glass, um, uh, for their, uh, um, glass star a few years ago where we got kids to design the paint scheme, and it was a whole big deal. You've probably all seen the aircraft at Oshkosh every year uh, with EA Young Eagles all over it, and a, uh, a kid designed it, the scheme and, and won the competition to do that, or in doing that. And we'd put that competition out through the schools, and um, it had only limited play um, because there wasn't a lot of promotion behind it. 
But I put it through my kids' school, and the response was amazing. I mean, every kid in the school was like running around drawing planes. Um, and uh, that's great. Um, in fact, uh, one of the girls from one of the local schools in my town was uh, a runner-up prize in her eighth, won a, a prize in her age category. And then oh. one kid overall won and designed the scheme. So I said to Lynn, "Hey, this is a kids' program. Let's do that again. It generates so much excitement." And uh, he thought it was a good idea, and so we decided to go ahead. So the competition's kind of got a soft launch on their website. I know I'll be taking it into my school system. But what I strongly encourage anyone to do who's got kids uh, is download the drawings and just make a call to your kid's school to the art teacher and bring this to the art teacher's attention. Mm -hmm. Our art teacher in our school system has asked me several times since the year eight competition when we're going to do another one because she had such fun bringing a real life project to the kids. That's very um, cool. So very you just cool. download very the cool. drawings, submit them. Um, we're going to judge them. I'm, I'm sure I'll be one of the judges, but I'm sure we'll have others uh, pick winners in different age categories. There are prizes, which I don't recall off the top of my head, but the biggest prize of all is the, the winning design uh, will get uh, specified and put on the plane. Uh, you know, we may change it a little bit to make it work, but the winning design will go on the aircraft. That's terrific. And that makes it so exciting for the kids. The interesting part, uh, not to be too verbose, but the interesting part is uh, the kid who won the Oshkosh competition, and I'm having a mental block with his name, uh, the EAA competition, at least for the Young Eagles. Um, I met him at Oshkosh, he came came uh, to Oshkosh when he won with his parents who were not in aviation at all. Today he's in an aviation university studying uh, to become a commercial pilot, and he's stopped by our booth every year at Oshkosh to say hello. And it's great to see that the winner who started out as a non-aviation person ended up being you know, a commercial pilot and contributing to our industry. That's terrific. That's terrific. This website is, uh, it's buildaplane.org. Buildaplane is all one word, buildaplane.org. And you can go to the specific uh, pages for this this program, which is slash youth underscore art underscore program dot htm. But I'm sure if you just go to buildaplane.org, you'll be have a link to uh, to this thing. Anyways, we got to start to put a fork in this thing. Kirk, do you have any other quick shout-out you'd like to uh, drop on us here before we wrap um, this thing up? No, I think, I, I think I've used up a lot of the airways already. Okay, well, great. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us this evening. Uh, it is time to stick a fork in it. Craig Bar- Barnett is uh, is the founder and CEO of Scheme Designers, uh, which is a company which designs paint schemes for airplanes of all sizes all over the world. You can learn more about them at www.schemedesigners.com. That's S-C-H-E-M-E, designers. Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist. He's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and uh, you can learn more about his work at jebburnside.com or aviationsafetymagazine.com or avweb.com. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer. I don't know what to think. What's that? It sounds so impressive. I don't know what to think. I know. I was snowed for a long time. Yeah. 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 Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer. He's also a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine, and he's the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. You can learn more about him at kitplanes.com or avbuyer.com slash worldaircraftsales, or just Google his name, and uh, you'll learn more about Dave and his work. That's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. We want to thank Jeff Scoffridge at Ward for creating all of our 
show notes lately. He does an awesome job. They're way better than they ever were when I was doing it. And uh, and he continues to do a terrific job there. Uh, we also want to thank many of our listeners, and particularly Mike Morgan, for putting together the show opening disclaimer clips. And don't Fabulous forget... Fabulous work. Guys. That's right. Yeah, and, really cool. That's right. we got a really cool one coming up for the Christmas holidays. Oh, yeah. That's going to be hot. And uh, don't forget that you can all visit us at the uh, Uncontrolled Airspace website, where you can read the blog or view the forums or check out the UCAP wiki. And that's at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? I was going to say go flying, folks, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. You'll live longer. All right. And that's enough talking. Let's all go flying. TTFM. <laughs>